0: HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Teva Pharmaceuticals,
1: Hello, and welcome to the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, Senior Director of Education and Communications for the Huntington Study Group, and today I'll be joined by someone who has been a very prominent, recognizable advocate voice in the HD community, especially for young adults, and that's Seth Rotberg. Seth is a patient advocate, community connector, and motivational speaker who is passionate about bringing his personal experience to support the health community. On this episode of the Pod, we dive right into that drive and urgency that Seth is putting into his current work with young adults in the HD community, and now with young adults across a wide spectrum of rare and chronic conditions. In 2019, Seth co founded the nonprofit Our Odyssey to provide year round social and emotional support to young adults impacted by a rare or chronic condition. He has a master's in nonprofit management from DePaul and currently resides in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Professionally, he works as the patient leader recruitment manager at WeGo Health. So, without further delay, here's my conversation with Seth Rotberg. All right, well, Seth, uh, I really appreciate you joining the HD Insights podcast today, and it's a pleasure to speak with you. I know a lot of people in the HD community are familiar with your story, but I, I'm sure there's still a healthy population of people out there that, that aren't as familiar with it. And you tell the story the best. So I, I certainly don't want to take any of the wind out of your sails, but again, you know, first of all, welcome to the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I appreciate you inviting me on t- uh, to share a little bit about my story and some of the work I'm doing in, in the space to really help make a difference in the community.
1: Well, let's start with your history, um your your personal history and experience um with your family and Huntington's disease. Uh, starting there, um, uh, you know, I I know you've been an open book with, with your diagnosis, but but take us back. What is your earliest kind of memory of where Huntington's disease started to impact you in your life? So I, I
2: think it it started probably in, in 2005 when I was 15 years old. And you know, I did that math right, yeah, I did the math right. <laughs> and that's when my mom was first diagnosed with Huntington's disease. But I think the, the prior you know few years leading up to that, we knew something was off with her, we just didn't know what it was. And not just with Huntington's disease, but with a lot of rare diseases, there tends to be a misdiagnosis, it can be five to seven years, even longer. And we were noticing that my mom had those, you know, drunk like movements, the slurred speech, and she had the mood swings where one minute her and I are talking the next, you know, we're in an argument or she's upset about something and then, you know, snap of the finger and everything's fine again. And at the time the doctors said, oh, maybe she just, you know, has mood swings or bipolar disorder or major depression but that didn't explain, you know, those, those wobbly movements. And so it actually took like a, a small family intervention. I remember, you know, again, being 15 at the time or around that age. And my, my older sister was off to college. So it was my dad and I, my mom's getting worse. We're running out of options. So my dad, myself, my two aunts, my uncle, uh, one night sat her down and said, you know, we have, two options right here. One is that we have to check my mom into a mental facility to get more tests done and figure out what's going on. Or two, my dad and I were going to leave because you know, when when you live with a parent with Huntington's disease, it, it can take a toll not just on the person with it, but the family too. And that's why I always believe it's a family diagnosis because it does impact everyone. Uh, she wasn't happy with those choices, of course, but she was willing to go to the mental facility and that's when they ran a bunch of tests and determined, oh, she has Huntington's disease and was the first in our family. So of course, that's new to us because we know that there's usually family history. So my mom's one of four. Uh, the three other, her three other uh, brothers and sisters got tested, all tested negative. Uh, we figured out it was her dad who had it. But we think he might have been in that gray area, which I know it gets a little confusing, but essentially he may have not had it, um, but that he could still pass it down. So kind of the CAG repeat um, that doesn't show that you have HD, but that, you know, your kids could still be at risk. That's just our guess because according to my family, you know, he wasn't showing symptoms and he was perfectly fine. Um, And so that's where it kind of all started was, 15-year-old me trying to learn about it, going to Google, which we know never really helps. You know, It does help in some sense because you learn about it, but it's also quite scary when when I saw all the symptoms and saw that everything my mom was dealing with lined up with this disease and that the average lifespan is 10 to 20 years and there's no cure. Um, I think the, the challenge was not only trying to come to accept this as a part of my life for the rest of my life, But at the same time, trying to fit in with my peers in in high school, which, you know, it's always a tough time to try to fit in. And then I have a mom who is sick and I'm like, people aren't going to understand it. So I was embarrassed being out in public with her or having friends over. And so it was just very challenging for me. And it wasn't until, you know, a few years later where that's when I decided to learn more about it. And then five years after learning about it, went through genetic testing at the age of 20 and found out that I also tested positive for
1: it. Would you say, you know, when you first learned about your mom's diagnosis of HD, would you say that was a relief that you finally found an answer to the issues? Or in your mind, did that make it worse knowing what you had learned about the disease leading up to the, the fact that, you know, it is going to get progressively worse? There, you know, there is no cure. Do, do you remember what was going through your mind and kind of that um you know, that range of emotions. Yeah, I was definitely an angry
2: child growing up, to be honest, which, you know, surprises some people today, because they're like, Seth, you, you an angry person or like, you, you lashing out, like, that just doesn't seem like you. But I think it was kind of saying, Okay, why did this happen to my family? Like, what did we do to deserve it? And then kind of like, yeah, how, how do you deal with it? Um, I, I was in so much denial about it and I just didn't want it to impact my life. So I was trying to, you know, still be a, a, typical high school kid, you know, playing sports, hanging out with friends. You know, I ended up picking up some, a few jobs, staying after school, just to kind of stay away from the house. And it wasn't because of my mom, I think it was just because of trying to accept this disease that's going to take over her and her life. And it's going to change my my family's life I think that was the challenging part it was a relief to know what was going on because again the other option was that my dad and I were going to leave and you know I feel like I would have a lot more guilt if we ended up leaving and finding out later that she had it saying wow we we could have done something and so yeah I was definitely you know just quite upset about it uh, and and angry about it just because I, I just didn't want to accept it and I guess you could say I was going through that grief and loss stage, right? I was in in the, you know, angry part of it and being in in denial. And then I don't know really what hit me in college that made me be like, oh, wow, actually I'm at risk. Um, I think one part of it had to do with my biology class junior in high school and doing those Punnett squares and, you know, uh, talking to my teacher about it. And, you know, what I was taught, it was not the right thing, which was, you know, the, the father usually has the dominant genes. And so because of that, I'm I'm in the clear and that's of course not how it works. And so when I realized that I was like, oh, wow, I'm at risk and I could end up like my mom one day. So what do I do now? And that's when I decided I want to get more involved. I want to host a fundraiser. I also kind of wanted to make up for lost time because to be honest, like I was so upset that I ended up, you know, taking it out on my mom, because I just didn't understand it. And I didn't know how to cope with it. And and so it it was a challenge. And I think the guilty side of me is saying, how how do I not fix the past, but how do I kind of help improve it for today and for tomorrow?
1: How did that, uh, once you learned that, that your mother had Huntington's disease, how did that change your role as a caregiver? Like now, you know, Obviously, you now had access to maybe different professionals um, or different tactics or approach, um, whereas before you're kind of managing the issues, like you said, and it was getting to the point where, you know, you and, and your dad were um, thinking about leaving. What was the shift then like and, and how does that you know relate to some of the, the work that you're doing now, um, you know, with youth that are going through some of those similar transitions?
2: Yeah, so I, I think you know, a couple of things is, you know, my dad being the main caregiver and he was there through the whole time, you know, through the good parts and not so good parts. And, you know, my, my hat goes off to him because, you know, seeing that and him, you know, when I was growing up, you know, him being like a role model to me, uh, made me realize how important life is and how you need to just appreciate the little things. And, I think, you know, my sister would help, of course, help out when she came back uh, from Arizona. Um, But, you know, when I was in high school, and that was kind of the the meat of things, like when it was started to get really tough, I would have to take her out for errands, I would have to take on more responsibility at home. And so it felt like I was growing up a lot faster than my peers. And so even though I'm 30 now, I feel like I have such an old soul because I had to grow up a lot faster. And I've talked with a lot of people in, in the HD community and just who deal with any rare or chronic condition or even just any adversity. You grow up a lot faster and you just appreciate life and you understand, you know, what you need to do for yourself, but also the people you care about and you and you love. Um, so my caregiving role, like it was just kind of helping out my dad or my sister with my with my mom and, and whatnot. But um, I think what changed is when I tested myself, you know, it got a lot tougher for me mentally because when you see your, your loved one go through it and you say, wow, that could be me. It it gets quite scary. And what I mean by that is, so my mom, um, she passed away six years ago. She was 60 years old. She ended up in a nursing facility. And I remember like, you know, my sister, come home usually during the summers because she was a teacher and she was like, why aren't you going to visit mom more? Like, why aren't you going? And I just was like, I don't want to, but deep down inside, it was because I feared seeing her and seeing myself in her being like, this is tough. Right. Especially towards the end of it, you know, it kind of made me realize, wow, that this could be me one day, unless I do something about it, unless I take action. And that's kind of what stemmed me to get more involved in the HD community um, you know, one, you know, at first getting involved with HDSA, eventually getting on the board for HDO, and now, you know, to this day, really working with, you know, early stage biotech companies that have a focus in, in HD, or just trying to figure out, you know, how do we advance research through my own story and the story of many others who are either A, at risk and are deciding to test, uh, B, like me, or pre-symptomatic. Um, but have tested positive or maybe are even early, you know, early symptoms. And what I mean by that is maybe they have the cognitive and psychiatric piece of it, but not the motor symptoms yet. And how do we, how do we get their voices heard when it comes to, to research?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I'm curious too. So you, you went through all of this and then, um, you know, you ultimately came to the decision for yourself to get the genetic testing it at what I, you know, what I think uh, or consider, you know, fairly early age, at the age of 20, um, which is, you know, a period in most people's lives where they feel invincible. You know, you're at that college age. Nothing's going to bother me. And you talked about it a little bit where um, it's kind of maybe the less I know, the better I am. You know, the ignorance is bliss kind of approach. Um, Talk about what really... You know finally prompted you to make that decision for yourself and and how you kind of carry that message forward you know obviously the the choice to get tested is an individual one and there you know there are people that should be involved in that but for you specifically the process you went through to get to that decision point and then you know how you communicate that to to youth today
2: you're absolutely right in that genetic testing is, is such a personal decision and it shouldn't be based off of anyone else except for your own uh, decision. But what I would say is making sure you have the right resources and support when figuring out if, if you have Huntington's disease or any other kind of genetic condition. Uh, I, I know, you know, with kind of just some stats that I think it's about only 10 to 15 percent of people who are at risk for Huntington's disease actually decide to go through testing. And I understand that part. Cause they're like, there's no treatment. There's no cure. What, why do it? For me, it was kind of like, I wanted to know my future. I wanted to know what the future in, in, entailed and you know, how can I use that to my, I guess, advantage of preparing for life with or without HD. I, I think what, what was going through my head was, really, as I dive deeper into understanding HD, when I was in college, seeing kind of the list of symptoms, and then resembling, I guess, my, my mom, in some ways, whether it was dropping a phone forgetting an earlier conversation, it was very easy for me to just say, Oh, is this HD or not? Is this HD or not? And I kept thinking about that, where it was just mentally draining. And I I wanted to know, so I didn't have to worry about, about it anymore. I mean, at at the end of the day, like it most likely wasn't HD, but in my mind it was like, oh, it could be. Um, it was probably just me being a typical college student and not realizing that. But what I decided to do, and I I, I share this uh, in a TEDx talk that I did in, in 2018, is that, you know, I went in pretty much by, by myself. I got a referral from my primary care physician to a neurologist. Uh, went in, talked to him about the family history, two, two weeks later, went back, and that's when he told me I tested positive. You know, I didn't go through genetic counseling, which I always recommend people today to do because it's such a valuable resource. I had a friend who was in the waiting room, but not in like the doctor's room. And I recommend having a friend and even family because the other part was I didn't tell my family for a few years. Um, and that was my own personal decision because I didn't want them to worry about me. And I also didn't want my mom to ever find out because I didn't want her to feel guilty. Uh, Luckily she didn't, but then I realized the importance of telling them, told them a few years later, they understood, they support me, they love me, Uh, same with my friends. And I realized that, you know, with all of this, that you'll realize who your true friends are, which are those that aren't gonna treat you differently and aren't going to define you by your condition they're going to be the ones who see you for more than just hd and that they're going to you know appreciate you based off your values interests and you know personality
1: yeah you uh, in that uh, tedx talk that you mentioned you told a really cool story about your dad's reaction and and how nervous you were going into that. i was i was wondering if you you do it much more justice uh, if you wouldn't mind <laughs> sharing that with with folks. I thought it was a really cool reaction.
2: Yeah, so you know, tell. I think that was a, such a nerve wracking situation, telling my dad as well as telling my sister about you know this this big news, and you know one thing I didn't mention in my TEDx talk is I I, I will admit. Need a little liquid courage um, to because I was like, I don't know what, what he's going to say, how he's going to react. And at the time I walk, walked into my living room, my dad's, you know, watching TV, probably watching the Red Sox. He's a big fan of that. And, you know, I told him I had something important to tell him. He kind of looked at me and said, all right, you know, what is it? What do you need to say? And I said, Hey, I tested positive for Huntington's disease. And he just kind of looked back and I was like, all right, sounds good. Like he was so nonchalant about it that it kind of caught me off guard to be like, all right, like, you don't have any questions, like what's the deal? But I think it was just kind of his positive outlook on life. And I think also what he learned just as a carrier to my mom was just kind of like, Hey, research, researchers are making great progress and that there's going to be something sooner rather than later. Um, now that was, I was going to say, that was about seven, eight years ago. And yes, research has, has been amazing. Oh, you know, I've learned so much about all these different companies working in HD. But I think now it's the time to also take that next step of reframing that mindset of, hey, we can be hopeful, but hopeful feeling hope is not going to necessarily move the needle. Acting with urgency will. And that's kind of my my new message today is is how do we act with more urgency for treatment options and making sure that we can slow this down, uh, halt it in its tracks, or even reverse the course.
1: Yeah, so that's a great um, point for follow up. So, twenty year old Seth Rotberg has been tested; he knows his outcome, and you know, a couple years later, told friends and family. So now you've gone from having been involved in you know activities kind of in in support of your mother's diagnosis to now knowing that you have you have to you want to do something for you and you talked about the urgency and you know in terms of timing with everything with the community currently with you know uh, recent trial outcomes yeah there there is a sense of urgency so talk about how you know after. After the diagnosis, after you told everybody, what ha- you know, what was the motivation then, and how are you taking that, you know, communicating that level of urgency into action, a plan of action now, and and steps going forward um, to help people that are going to start entering that same that same phase, that same transition that you did, you know, several years ago. So
2: I, I think the the first thing is like understanding you know, you can't do everything for everyone. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I wanted to do everything. Like I I didn't know how to say no to things. And so I was like, oh, you want me to share my story? Sure. Oh, you want me to do this fundraiser? Oh, you want me to volunteer for this? I'm saying yes to everything because I just wanted to help everyone. And I realized at the end of the day, if I can't help myself first, it's gonna be tough to help others. And so that was like one of the biggest kind of lessons I've learned even more recently is, you know, one, it's okay to say no, and two, like, focus on a few things versus trying to do a 100 things that are kind of at a lower level. And so, you know, once I was more open with it, I think I really focused to trying to support more young people. That's why I joined the board for the Huntington's Disease Youth Organization was because I didn't want anyone to go through the similar experience as myself. I knew that they had a lot of Uh, great resources and educational content. And I wanted to make sure people were aware of that. And also just the idea of connecting with another young adult is very different than connecting with an older caregiver or an older person living with HD. And I remember the first person I met was right before I went through testing when I was in college, you know, someone who lived down the hall said her friend was coming, that her mom has HD. And as soon as I met her, I just felt like I could let my guard down, just be myself again. And there was no no feeling of being judged. And I just was so open with her. She was actually the person that came with me for my uh, genetic test results. And you know, I think that's something that I'm still passionate about is making sure young people are aware of, you know, they're not alone in this. There's a lot of other people. Uh, going through, whether they're at risk, they tested positive, even tested negative, you know, I have some, some good friends who have tested negative. And um, I tell them, hey, I appreciate you that you are still involved in this community. Because, you know, I, I get with some people, they test negative, they're like, all right, I'm, I'm out of this, like, I don't need to worry about it anymore. But then I'm kind of like, well, what about me? And what about everyone else that you built a relationship with, that are still dealing with this? And so, like I, you know, I do have a good amount of friends who have tested negative and are still fighting by my side or for me, or and for their loved ones and for their friends, and I, I appreciate that um, a lot because we need as many people to continue to advocate. Um, but to kind of shift over to the research side of things, you know, I think one thing I, I, I've been continuing to learn about is that someone like myself doesn't qualify for any of these trials. Um, and I, I'm talking more, you know, interventional trials where it's taking a treatment or not. Uh, you know, of course, I, I do participate in Enroll HD and any other trials that are more observational, but part of me thinks, you know, if I'm considered pre symptomatic, but the goal is to stop the, you know, condition in its tracks or slow it down, then I need to be in some capacity involved in these trials. And the reason I say that is because we know right now to be diagnosed with HD, it's uh, mainly due to motor symptoms, but we've also learned more recently that you can see changes in the brain and cog- you know, the cognitive symptoms 15 to 20 years ahead of time. So it's, it's someone like me who's 30 now and say, okay, I might start developing motor symptoms in my early forties, similar to my mom. So, you know has the cognitive parts already happened? It's possible, but I think that's why I want to start acting with more urgency is how do we look at the diagnostic criteria? How do we make sure that people like myself and others can participate in these trials as well as, you know, help, you know, develop these potential treatments by getting their voices heard in these companies early and throughout drug development? Um, you know, that's something that I'm still passionate about is, understanding that with advocates like myself, like if you're coming to us, you know, after you're trying to recruit, to me, you're not gonna be as successful as coming and saying, okay, what is the most burdensome parts of the symptom of of the condition? What what are the most burdensome symptoms of the condition? Um, What about the trial design? You know, any other protocols? oh, oh, you're part of a patient advocacy organization. Oh, could you, you know, help pass this along about these upcoming trials, things like that. I know there's, you know, it's a, a lot easier said than done. And I know companies have to go through, you know, legal, compliance, regulatory. But part of me is kind of like, okay, do we need to educate them on, on the importance of talking with the community early and throughout drug development? Because, you know, if if we take, a study that's saying you have to come in once a month or even once every other month, let's let's say once once a month, right? That's 12, 12 days a year. May not sound bad, but if someone like me who's working full time, that means I gotta take 12 days off of work, possibly more for follow-up visits. And then I don't have any time for me for self-care. And so it's how do we kind of make sure that we're aware of some of these um challenges that might that might be faced or how do we make things more decentralized and more virtual so that it could be a simple checkup via an app on my phone or a a zoom call right or anything that's virtual so that someone like myself doesn't have to come in for a follow-up visit or we can make it a little more manageable so these are just things that kind of come to my mind of saying how do i not how do I, how do we rally up the community so that we bring more of this urgency of saying, yeah, HD impacts someone for 10 to 20 years, but I don't have 10 to 20 years to wait. I don't even have five years to wait. I wanna you know, act now by not just sharing my story, but the story of many others who are um, living with HD.
0: We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll free at one 7671 We greatly appreciate your support. And now back to our episode.
1: So, and these are really fantastic points. Um, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, in your role in advocacy, the work that you have, but have done or and are currently doing have you had conversations with with industry and and what what types of you know obstacles have you encountered or potential successes have have you found so far in in, you know um getting them to understand the potential for getting you know pre-symptomatic patients involved in these studies, or you know, understanding the you know the time commitment, like you said, if it's a monthly visit, it doesn't sound like a whole lot, maybe to you know somebody managing the books, but you know, depending on your location or your job situation, like you said, that's uh, an additional twelve days off a year that um, you know you may only get you may only get eighteen days a, a year to take off, and you know, if twelve of those are for study visits you essentially only have another week to enjoy, you know, your own personal vacation. Exactly. You know,
2: I, I think with, with industry, right. Um, some of them get it, some of them don't. Um, and that's not to knock off any of them. That's just kind of what I've seen over the last, you know, even just the last few years. And what I mean by that is like those who are bringing in the community perspective and the right people, um, they understand it whether they're doing focus groups, advisory boards. You know, some of them are doing market research, but then it's like, are you getting the right audience to answer your questions? Right. My, I've seen a lot of even these surveys that go out, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'll help out. Right. But then it says, are you diagnosed? And technically, I'm not. So I'm like, do I fit the criteria or not? And then if I do say, yeah, I'm diagnosed, I say, well, what are your symptoms? Well, I don't have symptoms but that doesn't mean my my voice isn't important because one day I might be taking that treatment so you need to understand my perspectives or people like myself. So it, I think when it comes to that it's you know that's the whole goal for these patient advocacy professionals within industry to build these relationships not just with the nonprofits but I think this is a whole new market of like patient advocates or patient influencers. Um, you know if someone goes to hdo or hdsa or help for hd or any of the others right you know that's one thing but i'm not involved necessarily with any of them so how do how do i get my story out there and there's a lot of other people like myself who aren't directly involved with patient advocacy organizations who have a really good insight into the community so i think when i think of like getting that feedback it's not just patient advocacy organizations it's also these advocates uh, who are out there who have been involved in, in some capacity, or who are knowledgeable of the community, who can provide that that sense of feedback as well. Um, but you know, it it takes it takes a village, right? It takes all of us to kind of uh, work on this together and to really, you know, bridge that gap between the community and the and industry. Uh, when it comes to someone, you know, for me to get involved in these trials, you know, that's something I'm I'm trying to learn about. I'm saying, what are the barriers of having someone who is presymptomatic involved. Um, you know, part of it could just be the risk, right? You know, I'm not technically showing symptoms, but part of me is like, well, maybe there needs to be different biomarkers to look at, different endpoints to look at. Maybe there's an experimental endpoint to look at um, where then you can extend the trial to people like myself who may not fit the first time around but can fit the second time around. Because again, like I say, like if if they're not working with people who are, you know, this this symptomatic stage, and they're trying to slow it down, well, by the time I'm showing motor symptoms, to me, that's too late. And so that's where I think we need to to try to revisit how to, you know, diagnose. And I'm not the expert. I'm you know I'm relying on the researchers, neurologists who are in the field of how do we. Lo- you know, look at the diagnostic criteria. I know there's another organization who has, you know, has gathered data from the community saying, yeah, we need, you know, to figure out how to also look at cognitive and psychiatric symptoms because they're so important. And so it, it's cool to see that the community is coming together for something like this. I think some of industry understands it and they, they support it. Um, I think we can, t- can continue to get the buy-in of other companies that say, hey, we need to look further into this. Um, but, you know, its I'm just one voice. I think just getting more more people, and there are plenty of people out there who are in a similar boat who say, I, I want to do something now, and I want to help make a change.
1: What do you say to those people like that? So, you know, somebody out there who who wants to get involved, but isn't exactly sure how to or what their best role is it? Is it is it something that's based on the person's personality or is there a, a standard set of, you know, a standard set that you think um, somebody who can be a successful advocate, you know, should possess or, you know, or is it just, is it purely a numbers game? The more people, the more voices you have, the better off um, you think it'll be. I think it's about making noise, right? I mean, I think it
2: can be through podcasts like this, uh, people blogging, people sharing their story in a variety of different outlets. And I, you know, even on social media, right? Of, of bringing this up because, you know, I posted a blog post about kind of this hope and urgency piece. And several people said, how can I join? How can I get involved? Right. And to me, it's saying, okay, well, you also share your thoughts on this. Or, hey, you know, maybe maybe some people are like, Hey, I just want to be behind the scenes, or I want to just volunteer. Um, and that's where, you know, I also recommend volunteering for a nonprofit organization and getting involved that way. Um, it could also be, you know, reaching out to these, you know, industry companies, their patient advocacy team and saying, Hey, I'm interested in learning more. Can you spare me 20, 30 minutes, or, Hey, I want to share my story. Um, you know, in that case, you know, again, my personal belief is that if someone is sharing insight, which is their story to industry, that they should be compensated. Um, But that's probably a whole nother podcast. (laughs) But, you know, I I think there's plenty of ways to kind of get that message out there. Um, I think going through the patient advocacy organizations, sharing your own personal story, and I've seen it. um, But kind of just continuing to make noise. Um, and I think that's by making also these nonprofits be aware of the challenges so that they can also help fight with us, um, kind of be on the battlefield, I guess, next to us. And then I think it's also making industry, not that they're not aware of it, but more aware of it, of the urgency piece. And I think also even the FDA, right. Um, I think, and that's just more for the U S base, the food and drug administration, making them aware of. You know some of these, maybe, cognitive psychiatric symptoms that come before the motor symptoms. How do we diagnose earlier? How could we maybe bring them into trials in some capacity, uh, depending on what we're, we're aiming for when it comes to treatment options?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was actually going to ask you if if you felt that there was a you know a, a regulatory aspect that that is potentially a barrier because, you know, uh, somebody you know who's pre-symptomatic you know, it's in the eyes of what the FDA is looking at, it's kind of hard to prove if there's been improvement, if if nothing is, has changed. But what you're saying is exactly that. Like, I I want to stay pre-symptomatic, you know, I don't want to get into some, you know, into the symptoms. Um, And, and that sounds like that is potentially the challenge too.
2: Yeah, there's definitely a challenge there. And I think it goes back to like the biomarkers. And, you know, again, I'm not I started looking more into cognitive biomarkers. I know two that kind of come to mind is the neurofilament light chain, which there was a study on, uh, I believe last year. And then there's the striatum. Um, And and I think both of those, we need to keep stable, but they can show changes in in kind of that cognitive piece. I know, you know, with psychiatric symptoms, it can be a little bit more challenging because of how do you evaluate it? How do you, uh, differentiated, uh, you know, just having a bad day, right? Versus, is this a symptom? And so I think if we can at least start with cognitive, right, that can help um, with just feeling independent, right? That My mom lost her independency. She lost, you know, she had to give up her license. And I think, you know, that's can be very challenging on someone to feel like, hey, I don't, I can't be as independent, I have to rely on others, especially when you're not perhaps elderly or you're not in like a nursing facility. Um, So there there is probably a regulatory challenge. I think that's also where, uh, you know, part of me just thinks when looking at companies and their regulatory or their legal and compliance is, you know, maybe they need to be in these conversations too. Uh, You know, the people I talk to is, is not necessarily them, but maybe they need to be more aware and bought into the community to know, hey, we're not trying to, you know, break the rules. We're just trying to help. And if we are too strict on it, then we're we're going to be too slow in trying to advance research. And so, how do we get our message to them as well, as well as just to any stakeholder who, you know, has some type of uh, hand in the cookie jar when it comes to the HD community.
1: Absolutely, um, Seth. I I did want to ask you too uh, a little bit about. Uh, you know, you talked about um, working with nonprofits and and the you know, the the impact that they can have. And you actually went back to school to get a, a degree in nonprofit management and have kind of taken that to the next step currently. Can you tell us a little bit about what um, you're currently focused on with uh, with the Our Odyssey?
2: Yeah, sure. And. Um it's interesting because I decided I wanted to go back to get a master's in nonprofit management and actually one of the first classes is they explain you know why it's not a good idea to start your own nonprofit and, <laughs> I <am> doing that. <laughs> and, and you know I, I can understand why I mean nonprofits need to def- need to be run by like a business right I mean you're raising money uh, you're pushing out programs I mean you could say programs are like a business's product right you have you're providing a service um, and so you gotta I think you got to look at a nonprofit like a business and I I'll be perfectly honest like never thought I was gonna start one I think the reason behind it was because there's this unmet need with young adults who were impacted by a rare chronic condition that were you know, between the ages of 18 to 35. Um, I looked at a, kind of the cancer model of young adult cancer patients and survivors. And, you know, I noticed that there was data out there, there's support out there, there's organizations out there. But then when I looked in kind of, you know, more specifically the rare disease space, you know, there's these a lot of these great patient advocacy organizations, including H- HDO, but there wasn't like an umbrella organization That supported young adults living with any condition, because with some of these rare diseases, the closest person could be across the country or even across the world. But what we've learned is that it's you don't need to have the same condition to have the same experience or a similar experience of how do you navigate college or figure out your career plans or family planning or dating or talking with friends about it, um, being financially stable, right? And I, I think you know, of course, all those things are challenging, but then add a health condition, and it makes it a lot more complex. And so I just decided to ask young adults themselves, I said, would you be interested in connecting with other young adults? Uh, would you be interested in in-person events, virtual events? And after, you know, young adults from at the, at the time, uh, from 65 different health conditions saying, yeah, I would love to do this. I was like, well, got to do it then, got to make it happen because if, if I don't do it, then who's going to do it? And so, you know, our Odyssey was founded uh, two years ago to really provide that year-round support versus the one-off approach because that was the other challenge that I, I noticed was that organizations would have like a one-off event or a big conference, convention, and it was awesome, right? I, I'd meet, you know, I'd go to the HDSA convention and I'd, you know, reconnect with my friends and, and catch up with them, but then after a few days, you know, convention's over back home and our guide, I'll see you, I'll see you next year. Right. And I think that was the challenge to me is because I just felt like, Oh, wow, I got to wait a whole year for me to see them again. And, you know, I felt like, how can we make this more year round? How do we provide more events, whether it's in person or virtually, so young adults can stay connected throughout the year, get that peer to peer support and really help improve their quality of life. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do now with our odyssey is provide that sense of belonging, um, make sure young adults feel that, you know, feel connected to each other and then try to also provide some resources to them. And it's not necessarily our own resources. Um, you know, it's not reinventing the wheel. So if there's an organization out there, that's a great resource. We're gonna say, Hey, check out this resource from so-and-so organization. Like, you know, I know, uh, there's like global genes and, uh, the National Organization for Rare Disorders, also known as NORD, a lot of great resources. We're not going to, you know, credit our own. We're going to say, hey, check out their resources that they have provided that might be useful or helpful for you along your kind of health odyssey, per se.
1: Right. You, um, taking it back to something you covered earlier um, in our conversation, you talked about um, someone you had met um, w- when you're, that you, felt you could just easily talk to and she ultimately accompanied you to your genetic testing. Have you found that that's been the case bringing together youth, even, even across different, your, uh, rare diseases that they are, you know, that they instantly make those connections and it's, it doesn't have to be disease specific or symptom specific or, or issue specific. Absolutely.
2: I mean that, you know, I, I, at one point thought, Oh, is this just me that, that enjoys this? Cause I started going to these health conferences, meeting young other young adults and being like, wow, we can connect on a whole nother level. Like they get it. And I just, again, felt like I could be myself again. And it's not that my friends or family judged me. It's just like, I think there's a difference between like living with a health condition and kind of being on kind of on the outside of it. And so, when I met all these other young adults, I was like, Oh, this is awesome. Like, you know, they're all really cool. Um, and I uh, easy, easy to talk with and, and connect with. And, you know, when I saw that they were connecting with each other, I was like, okay, there, there's something here that is bigger than just me. It's not just me who, who enjoys these social connections. It's a lot of other young adults. And I think the big thing is that I learned is never assume what's best for them, right? Your, your community or whoever your target audience is or your, that you're trying to support, simply just ask them, say, hey, are you interested in this? Or, hey, we're gonna put out a quick survey and see, um, you know, if what we're thinking is good for the community is similar to what the community thinks too. Now, again, it goes back to, you can't please everyone, right? Especially with some of these larger organizations who can only do so much, and and I I've already learned that. Right. I mean, some people have individual needs that we just can't support. And we explain that to them. We say, like, you know, we're a small organization. I, I do this full time as a volunteer. We have one part time staff member. Um, we have a lot of great volunteers and board members. But again, we can only do so much as a small organization. And so we try to remind not just our community about that, but ourselves too, of managing those expectations and understanding, like, you know, let's start small and grow from there. But let's do it strategically as well.
1: You have, um, you have a motto that you live by. And as I understand, and I've seen the picture, you have a tattoo of it uh, on your back, uh, you want to, can you share the, the origin of that and, and, and how it drives what you're doing now and, and how it kind of permeates, you know, what you're doing uh, in the community?
2: I never thought I would actually get a tattoo to be honest with you. <laughs> um, I, I think it just kind of came to me, I guess one day um, and I'll, I'll give the backstory. So, you know, I was uh, a senior in college and it was the, the day before my last semester when uh, a good friend of mine, Jake, uh, unexpectedly passed away and it was very challenging because I, I think that was the first time where like I lost a, a friend that was around my age, especially when it was again, the unknown and no one likes the unknowns, right? I, that's why I went through, that's honestly one of the reasons why I went through genetic testing. I mean, you think about with COVID, right? There's so many unknowns, it gives people anxiety, it gives people mixed feelings. There's just unknowns of, of this, you know, unfortunate circumstance and, you know, I didn't know Jake too, too long to be perfectly honest. I only met him the year before, but I felt like our, you know, friendship seemed a lot longer because we just understood each other. And he was always kind of living in the moment and enjoying just life and living life to the fullest. And there's the, the quote that you referenced that's uh, a tattoo on my back it's live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. And it was in his high school yearbook. And then it was in, it was on his like headstone. And I think it just, I saw that quote and not only did I think of him, but I also was thinking kind of, of living just in the moment and understanding my own circumstances, understanding like, you know, my mom was kind of living in the moment even though she was, you know, suffering from HD. And so that's kind of what I try to to live by each day. you know, of course, some days are tougher than others. I'm not, in, you know, I'm not that invincible kid that we all wish we were. But, you know, I, I, I try to accept it and understand it, reach out to my support system, my resources, and then remind myself that tomorrow is a new day. And I have to remind myself of that, especially, you know, these days uh, with everything going on in the world, as well as just with HD and how it is slowly creeping up uh, year after year where I might end up, uh, with symptoms.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's gotta be the, the, does that weigh on your mind more than anything, or is it, is it something that's kind of a passing thought from time to time? You know, I I'm curious, like you said, like early on, you know, you said you might drop a book or something and think, is that HD or is that, you know, do you, do you still dwell on that or, you know, it, does it just depend?
2: I definitely do. I mean, it not as much, right. Because I'm, you know, I got to remind myself that I'm only in control of so much, but you know, from time to time, even like, not that my friends meant to do it, but like out and about and, you know, they jokingly, Oh, like, what are you, what are you drunk? Right. Like, and for me, it's kind of, you know, it's a trigger of, of, wow, okay, like, no, I'm not. And that, you know, is something that people would say to my mom. Or it's like, oh, how did you forget that earlier conversation? I'm like, I don't know, I got brain fog, like, I, or I can't multitask. And so it does get to me at times, for sure, of like, just thinking about it and thinking, is it a symptom or not? But I've been able to manage it more to just kind of accept it and understand that it may or will happen. Um, but if I keep trying to plan for the future, I'm not gonna enjoy what I have today, right? Because that that is, yes, I am a planner and yes, I wanna plan ahead. But what I've learned is that the more I try to plan the, the less I'm able to just enjoy what I have today. And I think, you know, my friend Jake taught me that, um, you know, and several other people, to make me just appreciate life. And that's why, you know, I went to Costa Rica one year and I went bungee jumping and, and went to Nepal and did a, a 10 day trek with a friend and, and really just trying to enjoy what I have today so I can look back at, at life. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I want to be able to have a family one day um, and make those memories because a lot of my memories of my mom are when she was sick, unfortunately. And so I, I want to make sure that I do have enough time for that, to have these good memories. But, you know, I I just think, you know, as much as I do stay hopeful, I need to stay realistic with life of what may happen. And I think that's where I, I wouldn't say I'm feeling the pressure, but feeling more of that urgency mindset of saying, okay, like, what can I do now to help bring change or help, you know, make noise in the community to say, hey, like, we need to do something now, we can't just wait around for these companies and be on their timeline, they need to be on our timeline as as
1: patients. Absolutely. Well, I mean, your story is absolutely fascinating one. Um, it's very inspirational. It, it really is a, a story in, in resilience. Um, I, I do want to give you the opportunity, you know, if there's anything else you want to add, but I want to make sure that, um, you know, it is there somewhere that uh, a website or, or somewhere that people can go if they want to get more information about the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I, I think there's
2: not not uh, too many websites, but <laughs> but they can go to my own personal website, which is just SethRotberg.com. There's no H in my last name, so think of it as Rot and then Berg, um, or they can go to our, OurOdyssey.org. Um, you know, either of those, I'm, I'm more than happy to connect with people, whether it's around nonprofit work, uh, community involvement, uh, just Wanting to collaborate, whether it's again with the nonprofit or with HD related work. Um, You know, that's something I definitely am trying to do more of. And it's not just with the community, I want to collaborate with any stakeholder involved in HD, uh, neurologists, social workers, uh, physicians, uh, industry, right? Like whoever, you know, researchers, right? Whoever wants to really help uh, take this initiative with me, as well as, you know, many others. Let's let's do it now. Let's not wait for another five years. Because again, I think we need to start acting now. And uh, you know, honestly, I I look at two different communities who who are starting to who have, who have made noise or are starting to make no, more noise. One is is the AIDS community, right, with the AIDS epidemic back in the '80s, right? They 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 pushed the agenda and they said, hey, we need to do something now, right? And they were able to make it happen. And now the ALS community, I feel like, is doing very similar work, where they're saying, "Hey, we we can't wait around. Like, we need to make things happen." And so, again, for me, it's always about not reinventing the wheel. It's how do we learn from these other communities and apply it to the HD community to say, "Hey, let's work together and let's let's make something happen
1: now." Well, Seth, I appreciate you joining us, and I. Uh, we will put those uh, website addresses in the, uh, the podcast description so people um, can click on those and make sure they have the right spelling and all that. But uh, I appreciate you joining us today. And uh, you know, we look forward to chatting with you many times uh, over the years to come in the future and uh, you know, help push for that urgency that you mentioned.
2: Yeah. Thanks again, Kevin. I, I, I do appreciate you having me on the podcast and, You know, looking forward to uh, collaborating again in the near future.
1: Wow. What a great and interesting time I had listening to Seth on this episode talk about his personal experience with his mother's Huntington's disease, his decision to undergo genetic testing, and how both have shaped him over the years and the urgency that he's pushing for on behalf of the HD community because of that. As I mentioned, the full websites that Seth referred to, OurOdyssey.org and SethRotberg.com, are included in the podcast episode description for you to click on to learn more or to get involved with Seth and his work. Until next time, thank you for listening to the HD Insights podcast. Stay safe, be well, and take care of one another.
0: We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.